0: Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. This is episode
1: 151. I am your co-host Russ, and I'm your co-host Mike. And there we are on our way to episode 200. We passed 150. We're coming up to our three
0: year anniversary. We'll have to do something special. I think we should do a face to face episode coming up
1: soon. No, not only are we coming up on our three year anniversary, but we're actually going to be recording the episode. On the actual anniversary of the date we recorded the very first episode. Wow. Yeah. It just happens to be a Sunday this year because we recorded that first one, I think, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. I just want Mm -hmm. listeners to know that um, when we get together face-to-face, that means that I get a look into Russ's liquor cabinet, and that is an exciting (laughs) place to be. Listeners, you don't know what you're missing there there's some exotic booze in that cabinet.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's some really interesting <laughs> booze in there and I used all my booze bonus points which was a scary amount <laughs> that I had collected oh, wow. over the year to buy something uh, really great. So it can't all be contained. I'm going to have to get a bigger location to store all of that, you know, so.
1: You know what I did this week? I went to the liquor store. I was, you know, I, didn't, I don't have any bourbon in the house right now. Oh no. I was tempted to buy a bottle of uh, Pernod absinthe cuz they're now putting out the actual original formula. Right. Of absinthe. And I remember the, the Perno kind because you know, Ernest Hemingway wrote about it. Right. So I was like, oh, I got to try this out. And they said it made people crazy back in the day and stuff like that. But then they decided that it didn't. But <laughs> I don't know. I poured myself a fairly generous portion of this. And just two sips in, I was already just blotto. That stuff is really <laughs> strong. <laughs> I don't know what's in that. I have an unopened bottle of it
0: you're welcome to because I had a bad experience with some of that stuff once. Really? Yeah.
1: The other night, I poured it in a shot glass and just kind of you know, drank that slowly and by the end of the shot I was really loaded too, I don't know, it's really potent stuff. Were you painting
0: impressionistic scenes on your wall after that? Or? Only in my head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it, it seemed like there were paintings around me after I right. drank that, but there weren't. I don't know. <laughs> Boy, the favorite drink of artists back in the uh, early 20th century. Boy, I don't know. Anyway, we'll find several ways to celebrate coming up to our three-year
0: anniversary, and we'll keep the train rolling along with lots of new classical and jazz releases here every week. You get three of each, and we've got a lot of different ideas coming up for the spring. Before we get into this week's program, I want to thank a couple people from last week starting with trombonist David Gibson for sharing our episode. And we featured his fellowship recording. It's really got some great trombone playing, interesting original compositions. So check that out if you haven't heard it. Also, thanks to Origin Records as well for sharing our episode. And on their OA2 Origin Arts 2 label, we featured trumpeter Jun Ida's Evergreen and thought it was a really unique debut, mixing in some of his Japanese heritage and sharing the melodies with Aubrey Johnson's vocalizings. So that was a real interesting approach. Yeah, I might have to pick that one up. That was kind of nice. Yes, if you haven't heard those albums, go back and check those out. This week, we've got some piano and drums that are going to be the main focus. It's going to be classical piano and jazz drums, basically. Interesting mix. I think we're going to call it Themes and Syncopations.
1: Oh, that's a good name. I like it. Yeah. All right, there you go. That's what it is. So
0: make sure you stick around to check out the samples from all these recordings. In the episode description, as always, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we're going to talk about tonight. And at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's where you can get all the music in one place on Deezer, CD-quality streaming music from France. You can also listen to the podcast there on Deezer if you want to get everything in one place. Now, if you can't see the full description or the recording list or links are difficult to access on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, please check us out on our host site. That's com, where everything is easy to follow. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe. Tell a music-loving friend. And if you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get listed in the recommendations. Another way we get new listeners can also come over and follow us on our Facebook page to get extra info and new releases throughout the week. There's a bunch of new jazz I put up there. Leave a message or comment there. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We also want to recommend that you check out our friends over at the Same Difference Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard Podcast. That's AJ and Johnny, who look at several versions of One Jazz Standard in each episode. They play snippets from each version, talk about the history, you'll always learn something, and you're guaranteed to laugh because there's a lot of humor in the discussions over there. Get the original version and lots of different versions. Sometimes they find some pretty funny versions of tunes there. There's a link to their podcast in the description, and if you stick around to the end of this episode, you can check out their little audio promo and get a taste of what they do. Just like those guys, we are going to play a lot of samples. We're playing more and more in every episode. So here's our fair use disclaimer. Music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services and the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high quality downloads to support the artists. We're going to be focusing on the piano tonight in classical. Mike, where are we going to start out?
1: 2024. 2024 is starting out to be like a really uh, big year in uh, classical piano. I have three piano recordings here, and there are at least two other ones Hmm. that uh, just came out. So, I don't know. We got all these uh, big piano releases coming up. um, So, we're going to hear a little bit more of that in in a few weeks. But next week, I'm going for something different. We'll talk about that at the end. All right. So, two of these albums I chose tonight are not only piano, but they have like a all three of them, I could say have a sort of dance theme to them, right. they're rhythmically inspired, let's say. So there's something about that, so hence themes and syncopations is a really right. good title. It'll suit this episode well. The first album I'm going to talk about tonight is called La Danse, which simply means dance in French. And this is by the English pianist Martin James Bartlett and released on Warner Classics. It was, uh, came out on 26 January. So this album and the next album I'm going to talk about were both released on Warner Classics, the same label. Uh, I've got to say, Warner Classics are are not very uh forthcoming with the booklet notes here. Oh, really? There's a booklet, mm-hmm. and there's like not much about the music in it. You know, it's just sort right. of uh, comments by the pianist here what inspired him to use these pieces. Now, that's okay. The Martin James Bartlett album, this one, La Danse, is really like a French piano greatest hits album. Right. These are all really well-known pieces. So I guess you don't really need background on them. But the notes in the booklets are brief. They don't say much about the individual works themselves. And I guess, you know, you could say, oh, they want to let the music speak for itself. It's kind of like the, it's an artwork in itself. It'll speak to you directly. You won't have to uh, figure anything out. You know, true as that may be, I like a good booklet note. It's kind of part of the experience for me. And I feel like context is important in classical music. You've got a you really 400 plus year history. If you start with the Baroque era and now we go back to the Renaissance, that's another 200, 300 years. But the main repertoire as it kind of came to us when we were younger was 400 years. You know, I know that when I talk to people who want to get into classical music, they don't know where to start because there's just so much of it. You can listen to, you know, your Bach, your Mozart, your Chopin, but they're from three different periods and their music, right? you know, is after three very different qualities. So it's helpful to know where this music comes from and what era it was written in. All right. We don't have that problem with rock and roll so much because it's really during our entire lifetime. So we pretty much experienced it all more or less.
0: Right. And there has been a trend, I think, to make better quality booklets and packaging to encourage the sales of physical media. So I feel shortchanged if I don't get something extra for my purchase.
1: I got to say, also, at this point, there's been uh, over 100 years of jazz, so already you've got all these different styles, too, and it's helpful to know a little bit about when certain styles started and what was happening in the world when they came up, because there was a response to that. Music is always a mirror of its society, society, at least Western music is, Western music is. Mm. All right, so anyway, let's get into this album. This, This is actually a really good album. It's made up of dance movements. And in one case, an entire dance suite by French composers. And it starts in the Baroque era. That's why I let off with this. But it's going to go right through to the early 20th century. The first piece on the album, Jean-Philippe Rameau. He's a Baroque era composer. This is um, a gavotte and six doubles from his collection. Nouvelle suite de Pièces de clavestin. Suite in a minor. RCT5. (laughs) Number 7. This is a really famous piece that many harpsichordists and now pianists have recorded. Mm. Pianists have been picking up on this French uh, keyboard music. It was believed at one time that the French baroque composers were so wedded to timbre that you really couldn't put a French keyboard work across on the piano. And now we have pianists showing us that you can and everybody else missed out (laughs) for all those years that they didn't play these really wonderful works. The right-hand melody and its ornaments on this performance are crisp while the bass line is clear. Nice snap I wrote, yeah. You wrote that too, huh? Anyway, Bartlett uses loud and soft dynamic changes for expression in the Baroque style of terraced dynamics. Okay, see this is why it's good to know context. The Baroque era didn't have, keyboard instruments didn't have the ability to crescendo, they couldn't slowly get louder and it get softer. We needed like hammers to do that and the harpsichord plucks the strings. So you have something called terraced dynamics, which means it's one level of volume and then you can switch to another level of volume by using another keyboard manual or moving a sort of a contraption on the instrument that will change the sound, okay? So this is terraced dynamics, you're going to notice that in Baroque music, so keep that in mind if this is new to you. But he does this on the piano. You can crescendo and decrescendo, but it wouldn't be um, appropriate, you know, to the uh, style to do that. He gets flowing legato lines for the first double. Now the doubles, it says here, it's a gavotte and six doubles. What he means is variations. That's basically what the doubles Mm. are. And I like the chiming sound he gets on the chords for the second double. (laughs) Double is spelled double, but it's a French word here. Or whichever one has the constant moving 16th note bass. Third double double, I'm going to remember that, has ornamentation in the middle voice while a high voice plays the melody and a low on the bass. Fourth has repeated notes, crisply taken. Sixteenth notes appear in the melody on the fifth double, rich sound here in the bass and a shimmer in the quieter dynamic. Bartlett actually does a bit of a crescendo in this uh, fifth double, an effect, like I said earlier, not available in the Baroque era. But he is using a piano, I guess we could forgive him a little bit of that as long as he keeps to the style. You want to express, you don't want to necessarily, but you want to be aware of the style basically. And the final double has figuration in the bass as the right hand plays the theme. Each double, by the way, ends with a full cadence so they're easy to follow. There's a pause after each of them. Okay, track two, one of my favorite keyboard works of all time, Francois Couperin, Le Barricade Mysterieuse. Now, what that means is the mysterious barricades, and what that means, nobody really knows. It's a very mysterious uh, title. And I'm going to sample this because it's such a beautiful piece. I just love it. And it sounds great on the piano here. I'm so used to hearing this on the harpsichord, but let's give a listen to this here and see what it sounds like. pretty much how it goes more or less throughout it sort of keeps that same rhythm going it's really pleasant and it comes across here smoothly with that muted piano sound very smooth and even in the dynamic there are some retards at times we heard one of them at the end of the phrase which makes the piece lean towards the romantic but this really maintains its character i'd say this is more romantic interpretation than a baroque one i think but it's very satisfying this way i really liked it all right tracks three through eight are probably the uh central work on the album Maurice Ravel. In fact, there's a lot of Ravel on this album. It's basically an album of Ravel's piano music plus a few other things. Mm. This is Le Tombeau de Couperin. And it was um, written, it's a dance suite, sort of like Bach did. And each uh, dance in the suite is dedicated to a friend of Ravel's who died in World War One, And it's sort of bittersweet for that reason because it's, it's kind of a cheerful work. Sort of like in 2001 A Space Odyssey when the ape throws the stick in the air and it becomes a spaceship. We're now in the 20th century from the Baroque (laughs) era. Although the piano really helped us make that uh, transition. We hear the prelude. Now, actually, we're not quite because this is Ravel looking back really to the Baroque era, except that he's using modern harmony here or 20th century harmony here. The first piece is a prelude and le tombeau. It's funny, despite the harmony, the opening of this... Sounds more rooted in the Baroque than the Couperin track. Hmm. It's really because of the way he plays it. Let's listen. I'm going to sample this prelude from Le Tombeau de Couperin. This is the first movement. We get a repeat after that. All right, maybe it's a little too fast for the uh, Baruch, for a Baroque keyboard <laughs> work, but that's okay. The staccato was really was making me feel that. Uh, more pedals used for the um, middle section, obscuring some of the figuration, and as you heard, that opening was played very fast, yet the detail emerges very clearly. The repeat goes back to the opening style, and there's some explosive bass heard nailing down the root of the scale runs in that part. Track four, movement two, The Fugue. Here, more pedals being used than I've heard in this piece, but all of the voices emerge admirably. Bartlett starts this, and it just goes, with good clarity. It's actually song-like when played legato at such a steady tempo and smooth dynamic. And fugues are usually pretty intellectual. This one really comes across as being very appealing right away track 5, movement 3, for Lan, which is a Baroque era dance. I felt like this could have had a bit of a more of a lift in its step, but the melody comes across clearly. I'm not really being drawn into this movement the way I usually am. It's good, but there's more there, I feel. There's what I guess would be the uh, C section of the composition where the texture changes and less pedal is used. It comes as a startling change, and the tempo is a bit faster here. It's the section just before we return to the opening theme. Bartlett has a knack for bringing the catchiness out of the melodies, and he does that throughout this movement. And really, I'm going to say this again and again, really, throughout this album, the fugue is really played for its melodic quality. And even that prelude, you heard all that figuration, but there's like a melody in there, and he pulls it out. He really seems to be sort of shaping the entire work around what he hears as the melody. In some cases it's there and sometimes he's really just pulling it out of this texture. So it's a really interesting approach and results in some really appealing performances on this album. Track six, movement four, Rigaudon, another name for a baroque or a dance. This is also played at a quicker than usual tempo and with some strength to the attack. The middle section has a modal melody and is played more softly. It actually sounds Asian here in a way I hadn't thought about before. I feel like uh, Bartlett has his ear so strongly on the melodic material that he sometimes neglects the rhythm, which is all important because these are dances, and he even called the album La Danse. Again, though, he has a way of putting across the catchiness of the melodic tunes, that it really does grab your ear. I like a good song and a good melody, like anybody does, so I'm really kind of enjoying this. The seventh track, movement five, Menuet. This is very fast for this movement, and as a result, we're drawn to the melodic line. Bartlett doesn't luxuriate in Ravel's magical harmonies the way other pianists do. He's more content with shaping the melodic line. I'm gonna play the opening of this. Okay, now I said that he focuses on the melody, but this was probably the wrong track to say that, oh, he, he loses the rhythm, because this one really does have, I don't know about a dance rhythm, but a very marked rhythm, mm-hmm. and we hear that pretty uh, clearly there. Track eight, movement six, the final movement of this sweet toccata. Now, toccata isn't a dance. It's showing your technique. It's played at a remarkably fast tempo, and I was pretty amazed at the rapid clarity of the staccato at the beginning. Uh, He manages to maintain this tempo and evenness throughout the material and at the point where the piano enters again, he shapes the melodic lines appealingly and they leap out. Let's get a sample of this. This is pretty amazing. And you're hearing how he's pulling out the melodic material into high relief. And also that um, this piece is, almost, is really percussive in his hands with those really quick yeah. staccatos. Um, this piece can sound like it's racing at times, particularly when the opening staccato material returns. It's an interesting interpretation, revealing elements of the score in ways that I wasn't familiar with. I have mixed feelings about it, but I have to say it was a rewarding listen. It was pretty exciting, too, I have to say. So, I don't know. I loved it. But then it was, I don't know. It's, it's sort of like that. Tracks 9 and 10, Reynaldo Hahn, Le Ruban Denoué, The Untied Ribbon. And this is a two piano work. Alexandre Tarot is the pianist on the second piano. He's French, so you have an English and a French pianist on this track. The first movement is called Decrette Indolente du Hazard, Lazy. Decrees of Chance, I don't even know what that means in English. (laughs) But uh, it flows nicely from the previous toccata. It has an appealing ebb and flow to it, as though the melodic material were floating on an ocean wave, and it's a pretty brief piece, and I'd like to sample it because it's a little rare. I don't know if most people have heard this. so we're hearing two pianos there you want to keep in mind for this and the next track which is called Les Soirs d'Albi. Albi is a place in France. These evenings in the Soirs of Albi they're obviously happy evenings and this upbeat piece attests to that. The middle section is more song-like happy but not as playful as the opening. I imagine Albi must be a sunny place. Track 11, Claude Debussy, very famous work that all pianists play when they're young. Arabesque number one. We certainly hear this a lot in Japan as we're walking through the neighborhood past houses with <laughs> people playing, practicing the piano. Arabesque number one, it's this one. Let me just uh, remind you, I'll give you a sample of this right here. This is so beautifully played here. The tempo is mm. perfect, really. It's a little slower than we've been hearing in a lot of the other works. All elements of the score come across perfectly. And what I like most about the performance is its complete lack of affectation. It's just played straightforwardly. And again, this is when I noticed so were all of the other works on this album. Bartlett doesn't like to, like, linger. He, he wants that melody to come across, and he just really makes sure you hear it. He allows the piece to express itself, and that works well in this and in the next piece, Maurice Ravel, one of my favorite works, Pavan pour une enfant Defunte. This is the pavan for a dead princess. It's a bit on the fast side, but as has been the case throughout the album, the melody is in the foreground and is well shaped, and all of the harmony is there to kind of surround and support the melody, which I guess is as it should be, but the magical harmonies at the end of each section come through subtly as they should. Um, A lot of pianists like to really make sure you hear that because they're so magical and that kind of magical quality you have to be listening really closely to hear it on this performance. The tempo slows slightly for the first repeat of the theme at two minutes and the guitar-like effects of the rolled chords come through beautifully here. I'm going to sample that section of the score. To that magical ending, was you think I'm going on too long, so I have to (laughs) come out of that. Did you notice the uh, on the left hand, the guitar like uh, rolled chords? He's the speed is just perfect, it really does sound like uh, the sound someone would make when strumming a guitar, at least the speed of it does, and it gives you that illusion. Uh, really beautiful there. Bartlett also manages a wonderful flow on the last repeat of the main theme. We hear it as a unit rather than a lot of individual moving parts combining in that final section. This is a straightforward performance that puts forward a lot of the magic of this piece. And finally, track 13, Ravel again, La Vals. Now, this is originally an orchestral work. Then Ravel made a two-piano version of it. And then Ravel made a one-piano version of it. One pianist, and that's what we're hearing here. It's his one piano reduction of this score. It's evocative as played here at the beginning, as the waltz rhythm emerges from the tonal murk. Again, Bartlett has a way of drawing out possible musical connections from the murky opening sounds. Once the waltz is in the picture, we realize we're hearing this at a rather fast tempo again, but this rhythm is vivid and the accompaniment sparkles like a ballroom dress with a lot of sequins on it. I feel like the section from 2 minutes and 10 seconds leading to the cadence is sped up too much. As throughout the album, Bartlett is focused on melody and makes all the melodies hidden in the score emerge. There's a real explosion from the bass end of the piano at the 3 minute and 30 second mark, and from that point on, we're in for some vivid playing. A lot of the virtuosic elements of the score are casually and virtuosically tossed off, as though we were hearing an orchestral score, and these were mere parts being played by individual musicians. We're already in a rough waltz rhythmic season, the eighth minute, if you know this piece, the waltz breaks apart at the end. And Bartlett plays this aggressively and with sumptuous volume. Tempo starts speeding up as the waltz starts to lose its moorings and go out of control. At the 10 minute mark, we actually get a pause before the heavy glissando effects. Bartlett is especially impressive here putting across a lot of volume and wildness. It's a very impressive and highly musical performance, and that's really important. A lot of these um, performances can accent the wildness of the piece, and especially of the ending, when the waltz just becomes this really barbaric hammering. And a lot of people have said that that uh, represents the end of Western civilization in World War I, but Ravel himself denied that. So, But you can hear it the way you like. Anyway, my feeling about this album is I really liked it, and I kind of had mixed feelings about it too. It's all appealing. Bartlett is playing the French hits here, and he opts for quick tempos, and though the album is titled La Danse, it comes across more as La Melodie to me. (laughs) I think that should have been the name, but they are all dance movements. This seems to be Bartlett's strongest point as a pianist, the ability to shape and find the right tempo to make melodies as appealing as possible. He even manages to do this in the highly virtuosic La Valse on the last track, despite the intrusions of new elements toward the end. This made me hear movements like the Fugue in Ravel's Tombeau de Couperin and Pavan pour un Infante Defunte in a new way, but didn't help me much in the Fourlan from the Tombeau de Couperin. It's highly appealing playing and remarkable in a lot of ways. I think I should take time and hear it more and see if I start internalizing these performances, and I'd certainly recommend hearing it. It's immediately enjoyable.
0: I enjoyed these interpretations. They're kind of unique in some ways. The approach to the remote pieces was impressive really capturing that snap and evenness of the harpsichord well on piano. And the Ravel pieces pulled me in with dynamic contrast. And I liked the danceable feeling being pulled out of the Han piece as well. As you say, they're a little bit different, but probably take a few more listens. And I think it's enjoyable to make you think about the melodies that you know really well from these pieces and experience them in a little different way.
1: The next album is going to have some pieces that we probably don't know very well, but they're kind of making more and more, um, you know, headway into the uh, repertoire. They're all from Eastern Europe. Bartók Janáček-Zzimanofsky. That's the name of the album. And those are the three composers we're going to hear on it. The pianist is Piotr Andrzejewski. He's Polish. He doesn't record a lot. So every time he puts an album out, it's a big event. Sort of like when Pogarelich does something. Except that Andrzejewski's performances are always compelling. I always like what he does when he puts his records out. This is also, as I mentioned earlier, on Warner Classics, and it was released on uh, January 26th. And in the booklet notes, Andrzejewski says that the works recorded on this album carry within them a spirit of rebellion, and adds there's no room here for stylization or decorum, these works draw upon the very roots of music. Yes, I would agree. That doesn't mean they're necessarily wild, though, though some of them are. So Andrzejewski is going for something very specific on this album, the raw material of music's roots. And that's all we get in the notes. We don't have anything <laughs> about the uh, the individual the composers, the individual movements, when they were written, but they are based on folk melodies. These three composers did some work in that area, especially Bartok. Characteristically, Andrzejewski wants the music and his playing to speak for itself. He doesn't really want explanations. Anyway, these are all um, 20th century composers, we should mention, or, you know, turn of the century modernist 20th century composers. The first is Leos Janacek, On an Overgrown Path, Book 2. There are 15 movements in this. Book one has 10 movements, and book two actually only has two movements, and then there are three unpublished movements that are now included, even though Januszczyk never allowed it during his lifetime. So we're hearing mm. the uh, the two movements that Januszczyk published and then the other three that he didn't in this one. So I got that from my own research, not from the booklet. <laughs> anyway, the first of these five movements is an andante. The titles are all just the instructions for speed or the uh, feel of the works. The opening of this is um, simple in a folk song way and very prettily played. There's also a bit of a haunting quality to the harmony and Andrzejewski's playing. He captures that haunting quality well as we would expect from this particular pianist. He's pretty great. I should give a sample of this so that we can get our ears into this new sound world after the previous album. So let's hear the opening of On An Overgrown Path. little bit of spice that um, Janacek adds to that uh, chord right at the peak of that repeating phrase. He does it every time. And Andrzejewski is going to make sure we hear it every single time. So this is a very different approach than we heard in the uh, Bartlett album. Mm. So he's going to go for a lot of the uh, tonal coloring and the harmony on this when it's there. There's a subtle use of dynamics in that opening, too, and the section that starts at around the 45-second mark as well. These two simple sections alternate for the rest of the piece, and we've been hearing most of it right there, with Andrzejewski providing exquisite gradations of tone. This is one of my favorite things about him. And volume to maximize the impact. Really well-thought-out interpretation. Always the case with this pianist. I really do like his playing a lot. And I'm guessing we're in for a treat for the rest of the album. At this point, we are. I already heard the whole album, so I can tell you that. (laughs) He gets more out of this piece than most pianists would, and really out of all of these movements. They're deceptively simple, but he really just uncovers a lot of uh, riches within even the shortest movements. Track 2 is the second movement of On an Overgrown Path, book 2, Allegretto. It's subtly played, quiet, chiming, dynamic on the chords at the opening. By 1 minute and 45 seconds the material is THUNDERING out of the piano, and when this ends we have repeating alterations of the sections again. And is on top of every note, stretching the phrases ever so slightly at their ends to let them register and really give us an emotional hit too. Track three, now we're into the um, series two supplement that were not authorized by the composer for publication. This one was written in uh, 1900. The previous two were in 1911. So this is an earlier work. Rich sounding, thundering bass note comes in, followed by more intricate dancing material. And again, subtle speedings up and slowings down of rhythm. Do a lot to catch the ear and make the material emote. Track 4, Piumosso. This piece is started immediately following on the previous, with a sudden change of rhythm. And Szyzewski has an intuitive understanding of the style in these works, and the quick changes in subtle accelerandi, decelerandi, so speeding up, slowing down, do a lot of the expressiveness of the piece. He changes the tone for different sections, and has a beautiful gradation of tone within sections as well. Final movement, Allegro. Track 5 has the most marked folk character to my ear anyway. In the opening, let's listen to that opening. Yeah, that kind of crooked sort of melody and rhythm tells us we're in Eastern Europe, right there. Anyway, Andrzejewski gives it a bold sound, and he brings the thunder at times, but there's a beautiful ebb and flow to the dynamics throughout the movement. At 2 minutes and 20 seconds, a new theme starts over a marching rhythm that suddenly changes to something more flowing as the right hand takes over in interest. The march briefly comes back and fades into a kind of cadenza, In the fourth minute and then morphs into a folk theme over a romantic musical setting in the fifth. I'm gonna sample again later on just so you can hear that. There's a lot of variety in this movement so let's hear later on. This is about the five minute and 15 second mark. Zimonowski works real magic with this material. And the piece ends with that more romantic rhythm. Track 6 through 11, the Polish composer, Karol Ziminovsky. Andrzejewski has been championing his work for some time now. His piano music has been making a bit of a comeback. This is from his 20 mazurkas. 20 mazurkas is quite a lot, (laughs) so we're only going to get uh, six of them here. Other pianists have recorded all 20 of them, and it's kind of like a catalogue. You kind of have to pick and choose. It's a lot to listen to at once. But Andrzejewski chooses exceptionally well here, and we get to hear six of these mazurkas, and they're pretty rich works. They're really interesting, and they sort of hint at the mazurka rhythm. A mazurka is a Polish folk dance. Pianists will know the mazurkas of Frédéric Chopin, which are very, very famous. Anyway, Zemanowski's mazurkas start with uh, the third one in the set of 20, a marked moderato. It has a pretty crystalline sound to it, the harmonies registering beautifully at the opening. The rhythm is outlined at times, but the harmony often goes off into ear-catching territory. There's a quick silver change of material in the piece. As the harmony is drifting off, a whole new layer of sound will emerge. This is undoubtedly partly due to Andrzejewski's very sensitive handling of the material. One of the interesting things, and I'm not sure if this is a quality of the music or of the way Andrzejewski is playing them, is that he'll sort of draw out the rhythm at times, and then it'll sort of go away. Like you're remembering, oh, this is that rhythm, and then you're not really hearing it anymore. And he will just sort of sometimes remind you that it's there. It's pretty interesting. Track seven is number seven in the uh, Tony Mazurkas, Poco Vivace to Tempo Oberka. It's a quick tempo with a circling theme. The dance rhythm is discernible right away, but not totally obvious. Masked behind the harmony and material. It's an intriguing movement. Track 8, and this is going to be the first one I sample, is number 8, Moderato, Non troppo. Starts with a quiet tempo and haunting theme whose dynamics ebb and flow from piano, meaning soft, to mezzo forte. Let's hear a sample of this. quick changes of sort of rhythmic and melodic profile mm. in this piece andrzejewski characterizes the changing material well as you heard attuned to the variety of expressions these pieces put across by a minute and 34 seconds we've reached a forte dynamic and the dance rhythm is intact dotted rhythm material from the beginning starts repeating towards the end track nine is number 10 in the set of 20 mazurkas allegramente and vivace then combrio It has a forte opening that quickly fades to mezzo forte for this theme, whose harmony is restless. Let's sample this one from the beginning. of those harmonies that rising harmony at the beginning sounds like it's going up to a new distant key and then just doesn't go there it's really really strange interesting yeah this continues with familiar themes heard in harmony drifting from one place to another it's stormy and a piece that andrzejewski obviously relishes playing it ends with an appealingly taken thunderous chord track 10 this is mazurka number five marked moderato Again here we get an unsure harmony with fragmented though rhythmic themes. These extend and repeat as the piece goes on. I like the way the harmony will occasionally stabilize and the dance rhythm will be thrown into relief, but this never lasts long as the highly colored harmony brings the music drifting into new territory. There's a pause at a harmonically unresolved point at 2 minutes and 3 seconds. You really have to be hanging on to, like, every phrase of these, and Andrzejewski helps a lot with that. He, he's on top of this material really well. But it changes so quickly that it's sort of important to really be focusing. Track 11 is the final of the Mazurkas on this album. Number 4, allegramente Risoluto. And of the 6 Mazurkas programmed here, this one has the most immediately appealing opening, probably because it's the simplest. It starts boldly, then slowly decrescendos to a new theme at a minute and four seconds. We'll just hear a little bit of that opening. In this work, the departures from tonally stable material are briefer, and we're usually on surer footing. As throughout these works, Andrzejewski is quick to change his approach in order to put the subtleties of these works across. They all sound like the reward repeated listening. There's a lot in these, and not just melodically and harmonically, but rhythmically as well. Mm. There's a lot to register. Okay, the final 14 works on this album. (laughs) are uh, mostly brief works by Bela Bartok, one of my favorite composers. The 14, Bagatelles, opus 6. A bagatelle is a thing of little importance. So when you're calling a musical work a bagatelle, you're saying that it's not going to make any kind of big statement. It should just be enjoyed for the, the thing it is. There's nothing philosophical about it or anything like that. It also can mean like a short, light piece of music. And these are short. They're not heavy, but <laughs> I it wouldn't bar call talk, them light huh? <laughs> either. They're Bartok light, I guess. I don't know. It means that no big statements are being made. They were written for the amusement of the composer. That's what we should keep in mind. What amuses Bartok is not going to be what amuses the ordinary person. It's sort of like the way someone else would play solitaire, for example. So, you know, a composer would write a piece right. of music. Track 12 is the first movie. We're going to hear all 14 of these, by the way. Starts molto sostenuto and has an unharmonized melody. Once the harmony comes in at the 26 second mark, it's spicy, as we would expect from Bartok. It quickly disappears, and at the 43 second mark, a descending set of bass lines come in, one in the mid range. The descending bass almost sounds like laughter. It's really good characterization by Andrzejewski there on track 12. Track 13, movement 2, Allegro Giocoso, starts with quick repeating chords over which the theme is played. This piece has rapidly changing material too, but maintains its rather playful feel. Track 14, the third bagatelle, andante. Very quiet, swirling arpeggio ostinato at the beginning, giving a gentle feeling. The theme is played in the mid-range. Track 15, movement four, or bagatelle four, grave. Sounds like a chorale with tolling bell chords at the beginning, It's got a simple melody and is over pretty quickly with loud chords at the end. I'm going to sample this one. And I do like the way Andrzejewski has such an ear for all those uh, harmonies. He's almost like a master chef in the kitchen, just putting the right amount of spice (laughs) in the food, making it really good. Track 16, movement 5, Vivo. A rapidly repeated chord accompanies the hurrying theme here. This is going to be very different than what we just heard. So let's sample this too. way when when the chords in the left hand the bass repeating chords change how he's able to pull that out as a melody as well or Mm as a melodic idea really great playing track 17 movement six Lento, slow and sparse with lightly harmonized notes on occasion it's a simple piece most of it played with a largely unharmonized solo line at least that's what sticks out the harmony is more present towards the end track 18 a movement Bagatelle 7, Allegretto Moto Capriccioso. When you see the word Capriccioso, it, it pretty much means you're kind of adding whatever you want to it. It's a little, like, unpredictable. Anyway, ringing louder figures from the high end of the piano are heard here, followed by a kind of hopping rhythm, and it sounds like a folk dance, which we would expect from Bartok. He uh, notated a lot of those down. Let's hear the opening of this one. of teasing with that rhythm. There's some inspired rhythmic moments, all of them fleeting. We heard a few of them there. By the end, the bass comes in and the tempo briefly speeds up, and as with previous pieces, Andrzejewski is alive to all the subtle changes in the score. I ain't gonna say that a lot because this is really great playing. Track 19, uh, movement 8, Andante Sostenuto. A quiet, harmonized descending line starts this out. A new theme starts out at the 33-second mark after a pause, and there are moments of harmonic warmth in this score, relaxed into momentarily by Andrzejewski. Track 20 is Bagatelle 9, Allegretto Grazioso. This has an interesting rhythmic figure at the beginning, with phrases ending on a distinctive appoggiatura. Let's hear this. I guess I could call that an appoggiatura, but let's, uh, let's sample it first. There's kind of a leaping quality to the ends of those phrases. Pretty interesting. The entire piece relies on that double dotted rhythm heard in the sample at the end of those phrases. There are phrases based on trills towards the end. Track 21 is the 10th Bagatelle, Allegro. This is another rhythm with aggressive repeated chord rhythm. The rhythm drives in this piece, then at the 35 second mark, just after the sample we're about to hear, it briefly slows down and quietens, and then speeds up again. remains aggressive for most of its duration. So let's hear the opening of track 21. I really hope we're hearing the, the sudden changes of touch and attack and of rhythm that Andrzejewski is putting into this playing. He really is amazing at this. He can really just change things on a dime, and that really helps this music a lot. Track 22, this is the 11th Bagatelle Allegretto Molto Rubato. Quieter rhythmic pattern that slows into a pause and is repeated. This sort of pattern, picking up steam, then conking out, is a thematic feature of the piece. There's sort of a drum roll bass pattern after the one minute mark in the accompaniment that the right hand plays over. Then we hear familiar material from the beginning that leads to the movement's close. Track 23, the 12th Bagatelle, is a quiet una corda pedal opening, so it's kind of muted, that results in a rapidly repeating note that resolves upward. The movement is built on this gesture and slowly unfolds via its repeated entrance. There's modal harmony used in the harp-like figuration in the second minute. This is a sort of B section in this four-minute movement, and then we hear the accelerating r- repeated note again to recall the opening material. A subtly performed movement, showing Andrzejewski's attention to nuance, but you could really say that about this whole album, as I've already mentioned. Track 24, Bagatelle 13, Elle est morte Lento Funebre." So, she is dead is what that means. It starts low in the bass with a dotted rhythm and a melody above it. There's a dynamic buildup to the second minute and then a quick attenuation once the peak is reached. And the final track, the 14th and final bagatelle, is a waltz, Mami qui danse. Something that dances, I don't know what me is. Presto, this is the last bagatelle dance with a rapid repeating chord pattern in the bass. Let's sample this. sorts of um, speeding up, acelerando, and then like sudden, decelerandi really amazing ear by Andrzejewski here. This is a quick and aggressive piece, but immediately appealing. There's lots of variety of approaches are used with the material, including unisons, repeated notes, rolls. It engages the ear and intellect throughout. I don't know if I'd call this a bagatelle. It sounds pretty complicated to me. Although <laughs> I guess in content, it's rather light. It's an involved trifle, if it's a trifle at all. Anyway, this album of relatively brief folk-like pieces in different cultural idioms really exposes the beauty and versatility of Andrzejewski's playing. He's always been hypersensitive to the material and what he wants to express through it, and that quality serves him beautifully on this recording. Andrzejewski always provides us with varied concert programs on his albums, and this puts him in league with the pianists of the mid-20th century. What I mean is he's not a catalog composer, like he won't like put out an album of all of the Chopin nocturnes, for example. It'll always be a mixed program. This is an adventurous program for him, programming all East European composers, and unsurprisingly, he excels in this genre. The music on this album is quirky, and there's a lot of quirk, especially in the Ziminovsky and Bartok, due to the briefness of the individual movements. Few pianists could put this program across, but Andrzejewski is alive to all of the sudden and subtle changes in these scores and keeps the listener on top of them through his playing. It's an album that will reward repeated listening, as I believe the the first album that we talked about, the Partlet one is as well, but there's a lot to listen to here and this is some great piano playing too. Andrzejewski is definitely the star on this album, despite all this really fantastic and really interesting music. It's really an interesting program. The pieces
0: have both really interesting rhythmic content, hmm. but then also there's some moments of contemplation that are a little more placid. But the works seem to go together well stylistically. The Janacek has the most contemplation maybe, but it also <laughs> wakes you up with some crashing chords every now and then, interestingly. Right. Andrzejewski pays a lot of attention to dynamic contrast and phrasing here and making even some of the more difficult passages really appealing and keeps you engaged in the spontaneity that he finds. I feel like he knows these really well and knows what's coming up next, whereas I don't. And Mm. so I'm following his lead and really enjoying the directions it's going in. So yeah, kind of unique program, but really enjoyable. And as you said, I can't really imagine many other pianists putting this collection together and pulling it off so well.
1: Yeah, he definitely brought his uh, spice rack to the keyboard (laughs) 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 with some of those chords. All right, our final classical album today is called In Blue. Americans should be uh, familiar with that kind of title. This is by the American pianist Andrew Armstrong, and it's on the Rubicon label, released on uh, January 26th. The first work on this, it's all American composers, I should mention. And the first one is a contemporary American composer, Aaron J. Kernis. His piece uh, before Sleep and Dreams. Hmm. Now, Kernis was born in 1960, making him a few years older than me. So he's, you know, close to our generation. He's older than both of us, but not by much. Before Sleep and Dreams conjures the magical hour of children's bedtime. This is a really interesting (laughs) idea for a set of piano pieces. And I'm kind of surprised that no one has done it before. I guess you could say Schumann did with his um, scenes from childhood. Because there are movements about right bedtime in that but this entire work is about that <laughs> so it's pretty interesting it's a long time before bed though i got yeah, to say uh, yeah i <laughs> think i think the uh, the parent in this is like lingering in the bedroom watching the child sleep mm. for a really long time and contemplating these things contemplating what you might ask well the first movement is called before this starts as a gentle unison harmony, and then goes to octaves, very gentle and evoking the fragility of children's dreams, or the gentle feelings of the parent as the child goes to sleep. <laughs> I think it's more <laughs> from the parent's point of view, really. It's an evocative movement, I have to say. Armstrong's touch here is feather light. Debussyan chords enter at two minutes and 30 seconds, and we finally hear some bass in the third minute. At the end, the piano goes all the way up into its extreme high range, playing the notes at the end of the keyboard, which we rarely hear. Uh, The piece conveys gentleness and the fleeting feeling of the space between awakeness and sleep and that's according to the booklet note. And there's some darkness in there too. Track two, the second movement, Play Before Lullaby. Playful repeating notes and a skittering rhythm evoke innocent excitement and in play. And once we get to the 42nd mark, the melodic line comes in and we're in a Debussyan world. I think uh, Debussy is a big inspiration for this piece for Kurnis. Anyway, let's hear um, from that theme at around the 42nd mark. Armstrong's subtle pedaling at the changes of harmony is really evocative here Mm. as well. So this builds up to full sounding chords and forte dynamics. The pacing slows down a bit after this episode to something more deliberate. At the back, we're back to the Morse code repeating note at the beginning, followed by a buildup of tension to the ending, spilling downward arpeggios end the movement. Track three, we get the lullaby. It's quiet, as you might expect, A rhythm is set up in the piano's mid-range, and in its upper range, a gentle, dripping melody is heard. Armstrong's playing of the quiet material is magical. He gets a feather-like touch and expresses the innocence this piece is trying to put across beautifully. There's a dramatic forte section in the third minute, and the descending, quiet melody that follows is full of some derailed harmony, though it's always pleasant, only making one wonder, what's that, at what seems a faraway disturbance? I'm going to sample this part. This is at about the 3 minute and 10 second mark. is a little uh, deeper into the woods there with some of that <laughs> harmony when I just faded it out. It's pretty interesting where it starts going. I'm concluding that Kernis is highly influenced by Debussy in this set of movements at least. The gentle touch and fragile sound world continue from that point to the end and one or two forte chords suddenly appearing. This is a fairly long movement at over eight minutes. Um, this, this child takes a long time to fall asleep. <laughs> track four is movement for Lights Before Sleep, It's a brief movement at two minutes and 15 seconds. It starts with building repeated notes, blooming into a harmony that's left to decay. I'm gonna sample this one from about the 40 second mark. I'm hearing a bit of uh, Ravel. That's a bit of uh, Scarbo in there, I think. Mm. A lot of the gestures and harmony are reminiscent of Debussy. Yes, I said perhaps Ravel too. Maybe not Scarbo, that's Ondine, okay, from uh, Gaspard de la Nuit, the, the more watery sort of uh, movement, which is a piece about dream images. The reference is brief, and we go back to the repeating notes. Track five, the final movement before sleep and dreams quietly chiming chords are heard at the beginning followed by drifting chords in the melody. The Debussy influence is there again with chords modally drifting without weight in a manner like Debussy's first prelude, the Danseuse de Delph. The harmonies are all gentle and attractive. At 3 minutes and 12 seconds, repeating notes like those in the previous movement come in and build up into liquid-like figuration, mostly at the high end. The piece ends gently and very quietly in that high end as the child drifts off to sleep and I want to say this piece sounds really tailored to Andrew Armstrong's special talents he has a beautiful light touch when he plays this piece and puts this across perfectly it doesn't sound like an easy piece to play especially if you're gonna evoke those really gentle feelings and Armstrong does it so beautifully it's actually a really good uh, starting off point on this album track six is a piece by Julia Perry a prelude. Perry was born in Kentucky, and she eventually studied with Nadia Boulanger, among other things. So she, hmm. really one of the great music teachers of the uh, 20th century. Armstrong, the pianist, says this piece occupies a place between Thelonious Monk and church music of the American South. Um, okay. <laughs> I didn't hear that, but it would be nice to have him explain that to us. See if you could hear it. I'm going to sample this. Let's uh, try that. hear the church music those are a chorale chords really Mm. yeah it's a brief piece at one minute and 55 seconds this starts with opaque chords sounding heavy after the kernis work but played with sensitivity by armstrong there's a light blues quality to the harmony at times but mostly it sounds heavy like loudly tolling bells tracks seven through nine george gershwin he's gonna figure heavily on this album we hear his three preludes for piano Number one is marked Allegro ben ritmato e deciso. These are all very short, by the way. Armstrong takes the opening very slowly and softens and slows even more for the next line. He goes for fortissimo and characterizes the rhythm well, getting a warm feeling. I feel like this could use more lightness, more happiness, but Armstrong's interpretation has it on the heavier side, which is kind of (laughs) unusual thinking what a light touch he has, you know? Track eight, number two, andante con moto e poco rubato. Armstrong takes this more slowly than most pianists I've heard, and the tempo works well, allowing us to sink into the bluesiness of the melodic line. He doesn't put any accents into the melody at all, playing it like a straight song theme. At the two minute mark, Armstrong gets a good blues quality out of the bass line in the B section of the piece, though I feel there's more there. Armstrong hears this in the previous piece as heavier than I do. And track nine, number three, Allegro ben ritmato e deciso. The rhythm here is vividly played. Armstrong again sort of downplays the accents. We get the sense of the line of the piece at the expense of the sparkle of the moment. I don't feel like this is as uplifting as it should be, and I'll give you a sample so you can decide for yourself. For me, I'm just missing the smile that this music can have. Anyway, the next piece, track 10, is by the pianist himself, Andrew Armstrong. It's called She Fell for a Fly Fisher, and it's really about um, two friends of his. It's dedicated to his friends Susan and Gary Neumann. He um, <laughs> names them in the uh, piece. That could be pronounced Newman if he's... um. American, but it, it presents three scenes in rapid succession. First, we see Gary the flyfisher, so I guess the guy's a flyfisher here, gratefully greeting the splendor of dawn and distant birdsong in the Alaskan wilderness. This ardor gives way to bubbling waters which roll in the piano's bass. I need to mention, I'm reading from the booklet notes here. This isn't me talking, okay? Gary makes a cast. A naughty fish taunts him. He dives after it. The musical intensity rises until suddenly we're left uncertain. Who won, Gary or the fish? At last, Gary returns home to his beloved Susan. Warmth and the joy of homecoming pervade, nevertheless with just a hint of bittersweetness as Gary leaves behind the wilderness. At least for now. This is kind of interesting. The piece is called She Fell for a Fly Fisher. But she isn't really in this piece, really. the floodfisher is. It's really, it almost sounds like he's the only person in it, and then he goes home and meets his wife. Anyway, the piece starts innocently, with a melodic figure and ripples in the high end of the piano, and lots of sustain pedal. The opening is very quiet, bringing us back to the Kernis piece. Armstrong's great talent as a pianist is his feather-light touch, and he uses that to his advantage here. By the one minute and fifty second mark the struggle with the fish has begun, and uh we could hear a little bit of the middle of that, so let me uh get in at around the uh two minute and twenty second mark. So in three minutes, 30 seconds, a sort of Ravel-Ondine swirling leaves us wondering what happened, and the Homecoming section follows gently at the four-minute mark, and the piece ends gently. Track 11, George Gershwin again, I Got Rhythm, from the musical Girl Crazy. This has a bit of the rhythmic joy we're familiar with from this piece. Armstrong doesn't go for the playfulness we associate with Gershwin's songs generally, though he does get that quality from around the 44-second mark, and I'll sample that for you. Or the end of the piece right there. <laughs> yes, went yes. right up to the end. Yeah, he has this remarkable, like, evenness of the different voices. They're not really lumpy at all, and that really gives the uh, rhythm a nice kind of a chugging motion to it. I feel like he's missing the last ounce of rhythmic spring. It's a heavy tone that he uses. It's not heavy, but it's, you know, not light. What I'm trying to get at is he doesn't have that sparkle that I feel like Gershwin's work should have. Tracks 12 through 14, William Grant Still, Three Visions. These three works convey a distinct perspective on death and the afterlife. Oh, that's quite a change from <laughs> Gershwin, I Got yeah. Rhythm. This is quite a program, I have to say. Track 12, Movement 1, Dark horsemen. He snatches our perished souls up without warning, dragging us off to our uncertain fate beyond this life. Sounds of galloping hooves and shrieking. Frightful Horsemen are unmistakable here, according to the booklet note. It's about a 1 minute and 30 second long piece, it's very fast, and consists of repeating bass and chord figures that have a sort of gallop to them. Track 13, movement 2, Summerland. Summerland is Still's word for heaven. This is a complete contrast to the first movement. To Still, heaven is a place of rest. The playing is gentle, and once again we get to revel in the light touch Armstrong is capable of. He plays this beautifully. The melody sort of drips out of the piano. Let's hear a sample of this. And this sounds even nicer if you've heard the first movement first which really kind of puts you a bit on edge and then we have right. this movement that calms us down this piece remains calm throughout and only at the end does it venture briefly out of the piano pianissimo range reaching a mezzo forte at most it's a lovely movement very calming as you heard and beautifully played here track 14 the final movement radiant pinnacle This takes a step further from Summerland into esotericism, a sense of pacing and harmonic movement that is truly in its own world, according to the booklet note. This is the longest of the three movements at five minutes. Uh, It starts out with an open upward arpeggiated chords that don't close as though reaching out for something and not quite reaching it. Let's hear the opening of this piece. Dynamics build and we reach a fortissimo climax at the 2 minute and 30 second mark with loud granitic chords that Armstrong nevertheless manages to soften via his touch. He sort of cushions the edge of the sound, and it's a beautiful sound. After this climax the beginning material resumes and at the end we reach a gentle climax with some building chords added to the end as a sort of brief coda. Finally we hear George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. This is Gershwin's own arrangement for solo piano. So earlier we heard Ravel's arrangement for of La Valse for solo piano on uh, the first album, the Martin James Bartlett album. And here on Armstrong's album, we're hearing Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue's solo piano arrangement. By the way, this piece turns 100 years old on February 12th, yeah. mm-hmm. 2024. So... Wow. You might want to keep that in mind. Mark your calendar and uh, listen to Rhapsody in Blue. It's going to be 100 years old. Happy birthday. Rhapsody in Blue, yeah. Gershwin saw this piece as, quote, a musical kaleidoscope of America, of our vast melting pot, of our unduplicated national pep. That's his word. That word was used a lot back in the 1920s, I think. And our metropolitan madness. I'm familiar with what this piano score looks like, and I have to say, Armstrong gives an interpretation that's true to what's written in it. He's rather eager to get all of the detail to register, and this does serve the piece to an extent. All of the musical gestures come across well, and there's an admirable balance between what was the solo piano part and accompaniment in the orchestral score. It comes across as a bit studied, not really igniting with any excitement or that sparkle that I always want to hear. But it is enjoyable, so don't let me put you off this. At the three-minute mark, the build-up is well taken and builds tension, and that's a good place to sample, so let's start there. He wants to keep that rhythm going. I feel like he kind of holds back a bit on the grandness of that theme. The theme after the 4 minutes and 30 second mark really doesn't have the presence it often has in orchestral versions. I want you to hear that too. Armstrong does exceptionally well in putting across the form of the piece, making sure the listener is aware each time the thematic material is about to change by providing little retards or changes of dynamic. He goes for prettiness more than excitement in this performance, but it may well be that that's what this solo piano score demands in order to be put across. There's actually a brief section at around 7 minutes and 30 seconds that reminds me of Ravel's Scarbo, an association I hadn't made before. So there you go. I learned something new. I should mention that this 16-minute piece requires considerable virtuosity, and Armstrong certainly has that. He's especially impressive at the 9-minute mark, and I'm going to let you hear that too. This is one of the best parts of this particular performance. He interprets the final iteration of one of the main themes as a sort of march. It's effective, but again, I'd prefer to have more glitter. Let's just hear what I'm talking about here. Like, one, two, one, two, you know? It's kind of like... Overall, it's a faithful and effective performance of the score, played more for beauty and detail than excitement, as I said. There's nothing wrong with that. Anyway, to conclude, Armstrong's chief talent as a pianist lies in his feather-like touch and sound, and as a soloist, he's best in gentle pieces like Kernis' Before Sleep and Dreams and Still's Summerland Movement. Karnas' piece borrows a lot of its voicings and manner from Debussy's piano works. This program is heavy on Gershwin, and I'm afraid that Armstrong doesn't quite have the sparkle for that music, though it's all well played and formed. This doesn't slow the program down at all, though. Armstrong's sensitive touch carries the ear through all of the works. There are some rarities of American music on this program that certainly deserve to be heard, and Armstrong has done us a service in presenting them. So to conclude, it's an album of worthwhile works and performances with a lot of beauty of touch and tone.
0: It's nice to have an American theme for an all piano works album. I didn't know it most of this music here, so the Curnis was interesting as a concept, like I said, it's a long bedtime <laughs> tale, <laughs> but the pieces are really interesting, and the different moods and kind of sleep related feelings that are drawn out of it are really interesting. So I like this piece a lot. It's interesting. It's Gershwin heavy. Maybe, as you mentioned, not quite the sparkle that can be brought to these works, although it's always nice to hear these. I did enjoy Armstrong's original piece, The Sheep Fell for a Fly Fisher. That was kind of fun and interesting. I like that, too. Hmm. I really did enjoy the still a lot, too. The change of the moods. Especially, I found the second movement, The Summerland, really enchanting.
1: Yeah, that one really grabbed my ear as well. Like you say, his touch is
0: kind of special and especially on the lighter pieces it's really fabulous and fleet i'm pretty happy with the program overall maybe we can uh, pick on the gershwin a little bit interpretation but as an idea and concept it's an interesting combination of works and brings some different aspects of american music together that are enjoyable
1: and speaking of rhythm (laughs) we're on to drums in jazz
0: That's right, on the jazz side, we've got all drummers as leaders tonight, sometimes composers, too. And we're gonna go here and there and check out some really exciting drum-led music. Starting out with Ulysses Owens Jr. and Generation Y. This is on the Cellar Live label, A New Beat. Came out January 19th. Ulysses Owens Jr., born in 1982 in Jacksonville, Florida. He's got eight albums as a leader of his own, as well as playing with Joey Alexander, Christian McBride, Gregory Porter, Matthew Whitaker. He's performed on Grammy Award-winning albums by Kurt Elling and the Christian McBride Big Band. And last year, in February, he received his third Grammy Award for his participation on the album featuring Stephen Feifke, John Watson, and the Generation Gap Jazz Orchestra. We talked about that one on the podcast. Right. He's also published several books, Jazz Brushes for the Modern Drummer, An Essential Guide to the Art of Keeping Time, and The Musician's Career Guide, Turning Your Talent into Sustained Success, That's published by Simon & Schuster in his third book, Jazz Big Band for the Modern Drummer, The Essential Guide to the Large Ensembles, coming out on Hal Leonard Publications. He's been part of the jazz faculty at the Juilliard School as small ensemble director for over seven years and here he is <laughs> it's funny because uh, he's the next generation already and he's taking care of the generation y so he's got a bunch of young players here taking them under his wing and we've got a couple of different combinations of ensembles and some problems with the credits which i'll get into as no, we go buddy, along yeah. anyway ulysses owens on the drums all the time sarah hanahan on alto sax for most of the tracks one track, we've got Irena Terakubo on alto sax, Benny Benak third on trumpet, and also Anthony Hervey on trumpet, splitting the duties, two pianists as well, Luther Allison and Tyler Bullock, Philip Norris on bass for almost all of the tracks, we've got Ryoma Takenaga on bass on one track, and we've got one vocal track with a guest performance by Milton Suggs, Executive producer, as always, on Cellar Life, Corey Weeds. And also, this album is produced by Jeremy Pelt. And it was recorded at Van Gelder Recording Studios, the famous space in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, March thirteenth, 2023. Engineered by Maureen Sickler. Mixed and mastered by Dave Darlington. The album gets underway with a tune called Sticks. It's from Cannonball Adderley. You can find this on 1966's mercy 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 live at the club and it's a raucous start of horn hits and drum fills into a classic cannonball bluesy melody check out owens's fills and hits along with the funky groove as this one gets going let's take a listen That's Benny Benack getting going on a trumpet solo there, and Sarah Hanahan is an edgy alto sax player. Sometimes I feel like if uh, Sam Kinison played sax, he would play <laughs> the way she plays. <laughs> that's a
1: funny comparison. A yeah.
0: lot of edge on this album, but that's kind of what you want on a Cannonball Adderley tune. So let's check out her solo coming up later after the trumpet solo. Strangling the goose on that one. <laughs> Allison gets a piano solo next, working it up slowly with funky rhythmic figures, and Norris has a funky and fun bass solo. Owens gets the last word with a drum solo as the horns punctuate with that rising line we heard before, getting back to the melody and some final exchanges between Benack and Hannah. seems they had an in-studio crowd at the Van Gelder Recording Studios, and they really enjoyed this performance. Track two is trumpeter Anthony Hervey's composition, Better Days, a 24-measure intro of jumpy rhythmic piano, joined by a tambourine beat. Hervey's on trumpet on this one and takes the harmonized melody with Hanahan. It's just 16 measures before they're into a section of exchanges, and then Hervey launches into a solo, and from there it's the 12-bar blues. So let's check him out on this tune once he gets into a solo. solo Hanahan follows, working up from shorter phrases and working some outside licks and angsty cries. Bullock has a funky piano solo too, with some harmonic tension and nice descending trickles. He works it back into the rhythmic intro idea, Norris getting some bass time bouncing underneath the figures before the horns are back with the melody, into some trills and improvisations as the rhythm section thins to the ending. Track 3 is called London Town, and this is a Benny Benack III composition. Owens gets it started on drums and light toms. Piano and bass are in for eight measures, and then Benock takes the melody with a nice tone and gentle phrasing. It's 24 measures, and then Hanahan joins in for another round. I like the airy feel and light groove of this tune, so let's hear the beginning. section. Bennett continues on for a solo with really well-connected lines. Hanahan follows, working up to an edgy high climax, and Allison has a light and bouncy piano solo. The horns return together for another run through the melody and some final flourishes. Track 4 is a Luther Allison composition. Until I See You Again A solo rubato piano introduction and ringing bass notes join in. Hervey's on trumpet here and joins Hanahan on the waltzing melody. There's a 16-measure section that repeats, then an 8-measure piano interlude, then another longer section with new horn lines. Norris gets a bass solo that really rings out and sings on this tune, so let's check that out. over from there on piano. I like his light articulation and then chiming chords. Hanahan is back first, then gets joined by Hervey on the melody lines to the end. The ending surprisingly works up to a gospely kind of intensity before some final bittersweet solo piano that ends it. It really captures the feeling of parting from someone you know you're going to miss. Track 5 is Soulful by Roy Hargrove. You know, I'm not sure if he's ever recorded this on an album. I know John Baptiste had recorded this, who was his piano player, and I think I saw him perform this live. You can find live versions of it on YouTube. Actually, I met Roy when I was in high school. I was on stage with him at the Downbeat Music Fest Awards. Uh, when cool. We were just high school students, yeah. Mm. Well, this has a super busy bass opening from Norris into some rippling piano from Allison. Hervey's on trumpet on this one, taking the flowing horn lines with Hannah Hen, and let's hear it get going. Keep your ear on what Owens is doing on the drums underneath with the fills, because it's super tasty there. The horn melody lines are a repeating section of 14 measures divided into 8 and 6 measure sections. Hervey solos first with lyrical and legato lines to start before getting more animated and switching back as the groove changes. Your ear keeps getting drawn to Owens' changing of the beat and punchy fills constantly. Hanahan goes from a chilled beginning to intense cries in her solo, and Elson works up some rapid-fire repeated notes and figures in his piano solo working up to ringing chords. The horns return with the melody into soft final phrases to end it. Track six, let's go way back to a Louis Armstrong tune written by him and Horace Gerlach, recorded in 1937, Heart Full of Rhythm. This one starts out with some solo piano, but the notes don't say who's playing piano on track 6. <laughs> Milton Suggs is in soon on the vocals here. There are nice backing horn lines from Benek and Hanahan, who gets a sax solo, getting out some cries as we would expect by now. Benek has a really soulful solo on this one with great melodic connection before Suggs returns for another verse and a big build up to the climax and a soft ending. Track seven, Bird Lives, Jackie McLean tune. You can find this on his recording Dynasty from 1988. An exciting solo drum intro from Owens here into the boppy melody, and Henahan launching out into a solo. Let's hear it get going. solos kind of choppy on this one, getting outside the chords a lot. Benak has some high-speed excitement on trumpet on this one, with huge fills from Owens underneath, and Allison gets a piano solo with more rapid-fire repeated note ideas and zippy lines, and Owens gets his own solo, extended one on this one, and really mixes it up. So let's check out the second half of that, because it's a long one later on in the tune. to the melody there, but it doesn't end until Owens gets a final section of solo drums. Track 8, Helen's song. It's a tune by the great pianist George Cables from his 1994 album Cables Fables. A solo piano opening here, ringing, rubato, and pretty, and I'm not sure who's playing it. Looking at the notes on Bandcamp, there's nobody listed for track 8, but the CD cover that they have a photo of has both Allison and Bullock listed for track eight. Oops. <laughs> well, here, we've got two other switches in personnel, Erena Terakubo on alto sax and Ryoma Takenaga on bass. The piano works into tempo and a nice groove that's worked with rising bass lines. Let's hear it get going. a 20-measure or so trumpet melody line started by Hervey and joined by Terakubo for some harmonies. Interesting that it's so far into the tune, and then it's some impressive piano work. And let's hear that swell up a little bit later into the tune. Here's the horn melody line coming back in once again. Things quiet down, leaving the piano with a soft rubato section like the beginning. The horns add a final soft phrase to end it. And the recording ends up with chicken and dumplings. This is from pianist Ray Bryant. You can find the original on Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers at the Jazz Corner of the World Volume 2 from 1959. A big snare roll brings in a beat with a click on beat 2 joined by bass and piano. The horn melody is really sassy in A-A-B-A 32 measure form, but the B section really turns the beat around and tricks you. Let's hear that melody after the tune gets going from about 30 seconds in. Saxon trumpet trade solo phrases on this one, working up to simultaneous phrases, and I think it's Hervey here, although the notes don't say on trumpet. Bullock gets a piano solo next with some ringing chords and skittering right-hand lines, and the horn melody returns with repeats of the final phrase, getting softer and softer to the end. So it's Generation Y under the wings of Owens, but we get a history of jazz with everything from a Louis Armstrong tune, Cannonball Adderley, Art Blakey, Jackie McLean. George Cables, all the way to Roy Hargrove. The program's rounded out by a few originals from these young players, and the overall vibe has a 60s jazz intensity. Everything's powered along by Owens' enthusiastic drumming, which often catches your ear no matter what else is going on. Inspired solos all around, and everyone sounds like they were having fun playing this music, and the in-studio audience enjoyed those tracks as well. You're going to have a good time listening to this one, too.
1: Yeah, and at the beginning, we heard they had like an in-studio audience. It uh, yeah, yeah. sounded like they were having a real good time too. And then uh, at the end, there's no applause or nothing. You know, what, did everybody leave? I, mean, what, <laughs> I don't know. What, what happened? <laughs> you know? I wouldn't have left. I would have stuck around. This is a really good album. And it's well worth uh, your time. Anyway, so you have three drum-led albums today. And I was kind of happy about this because I tend to like uh, you know drum-led jazz albums. Because the mm. drummer usually just kind of sits in the back. But Owens doesn't do that, although he does kind of give his musicians, like all drummers, a lot of space. He's a really hard-hitting drummer and is very present in the mix. He'll draw occasional attention to himself, like in, uh, I believe it was uh, Bird Lives, right? Where he was really (laughs) going hard on the the solos. But like all good band leaders, he gives plenty of space to his soloists on the trumpet, sax, and piano, and even the bass. Both of the brass players delivered Deeply satisfying solos throughout the album. Yeah, the alto sax really pushing. You know, strangling the goose as you said <laughs> earlier on. There are a lot of styles on this album too, and we sampled most of them: uh, ballads, blues, bebop, 60s style lengthy solos, and that kind of real you know electricity that the 60s recordings had. I was into this right away. I was actually looking to see if there was a CD right on the first track. I was like, oh, man, this is going to be great. (laughs) The playing is hot. The solos push their tone at times. There's electricity in the playing. It kept me going. And I mentioned earlier, some tracks are live and others are not. And I found that a bit odd, especially since the audience seems to have disappeared by the end. Uh, The live tracks came across with more energy, the ones where there were people... Uh, listening mm-hmm. in the studio, but the studio tracks had real presence too. And yeah, this is a really enjoyable album, really good energy to it.
0: All right. Next up, Joe LaBarbara, a drumming great with a new recording, World Travelers. It's a live one, Sam First Records. Joe LaBarbara, born in upstate New York, attended Berklee College of Music for two years in the 1960s. Then he spent two years in the U.S. Army Band at Fort Dix, in New Jersey, He began his professional career playing with Woody Herman and the Thundering Herd. In the 70s, he spent four years recording and touring with Chuck Mangione, and he also worked as a sideman for Bob Brookmeyer, Jim Hall, Art Farmer, Art Pepper, John Schofield, Toots Thielmans, and Phil Woods. In 1979, he was a member of the Bill Evans Trio, then spent much of the 80s and early 90s with Tony Bennett. How's that for a resume? Hmm. And he taught at the California Institute of the Arts and the Bud Shank Jazz Workshop. Of course, he's part of the musical family with his brothers, saxophonist Pat and trumpeter John. And we heard him play back in episode 131, Maximum Music, with his brother John LaBarbera's big band on their Origin Records release, Grooveyard. On this recording, we've got Joe LaBarbera on drums, of course, Bob Shepard, tenor saxophone, Clay Jenkins on trumpet. Bill Cunliffe, a pianist we really like, and I Mm. had the pleasure of meeting him before in New York, and Jonathan Richards on bass. This was recorded live at Sam First in Los Angeles, California, on March 4th and 5th, 2022. Paul Solomon, executive producer, also took the cover photograph. David Robert, producer, that's a bass player, we heard with Justin Coughlin on his live recording on the same mm-hmm. label, and Nick Calapine, recording and mixing engineer. Gene Paul at G&J, audio mastering engineer. Recording recording's going to start out with a Bill Conliffe tune called Blue Notes, and this is from his 2011 trio recording, River Edge, New Jersey. There's an eight-measure intro with snappy rhythmic piano and bass figures and tasty snare fills from La Barbara, Right away you'll notice the clear sound quality of this live recording. The horns come in with the 30 measure minor melody section with nice harmonized splits and tasty piano fills from Cunliffe. Let's hear it get going. After that main melody section, both horns get some simultaneous improvisations for 16 measures, ending on a melody phrase together. Clay Jenkins continues on with a trumpet solo. His phrasing and rhythmic figures are unique with some interesting exploration of the harmonies. Shepard follows with a tenor sax solo, working up to some edgy tones and gutsy phrases. Let's hear some of his playing later on in the tune. is next, showing off his touch with rhythmic figures, smooth runs, and some bluesy touches. The horns return with the melody into a final improvised section to finish it up. Track two, Landmarks Along the Way. This is a Joe Lovano, the great tenor saxophonist's tune, from his 1991 Blue Note recording, Landmarks. This is one of the trickiest syncopated melodies I've ever heard. Hmm. The rhythm section gets it going into horn lines that pick up those tricky figures for eight measures. Then start a swinging kind of 12 measure section. Those sections alternate and then they keep it amazingly tight as they play it. Let's hear what this uh, tune is all about. Shepard's up first for a solo swinging hard, he hits the syncopated part together with the rhythm section as a transition to a trumpet solo from Jenkins, so let's hear his solo on this tune. flexibility and note choices there. Conliffe gets his turn next with an exciting piano solo. There are tasty drum fills from La Barbara, who gets his own solo section next into the quirky melody once more to end it. Track three is a Joe La Barbara original Lake Erie. It's where he grew up out there in the western part of New York. A solo drum intro with some interesting tom work from La Barbara into some clicky ideas. Let's hear some of that get going once we're a little bit into the tune. steady beat there, joined by a bass ostinato. The horn melody comes in. It's 32 measures, minor and ominous. It's kind of like an A-A-B-C pattern, brightening on the B section with a switch to swing for a while and having a different ending on the final section. Shepard solos first, working into some intense high notes and harmonically tense lines. Jenkins follows, again really building up tension with note choices and lots of space. It gets quiet for a bass solo from Richard's, his tone is thick and woody even in the opera register with good melodic ideas, so let's hear some of his bass playing on this tone. In with the melody and a little ostinato vamp at the end. Trek 4 is Barcelona. This is a tune by pianist Alan Pasqua from his 2005 record My New Old Friend. It's an airy, even beat tune, Cumliff rings out a pretty intro over pulsing bass, Jenkins gets the first 16 measure section of the melody, and then gets joined by Shepherd for some harmony and weaving lines for another section, and Cunliffe has a solo, so let's hear some of his special touch on this tune. solos next, switching to soprano sax for this tune. Jenkins follows, starting out with some repeated interval ideas and working up to some repeated higher notes that build up tension before a soft ending, and Richards has a ringing bass solo before Jenkins and Shepherd are back to take the melody to the finish with a final rising piano flourish. Track five is called You Know I Care. This is from pianist and producer Duke Pearson from his 1965 recording the Duke Pearson Nanette's Honey Buns. Shipper takes the melody, it's a ballad with an airy tone and nice vibrato, Getting joined by Jenkins on some unison notes with the bass into some answering lines and harmony, and Shepherd continues on for a lovely and lyrical ballad solo, and Conliffe has a solo with smooth lines as well. The horns are back on the bridge to the final section and a sax cadenza to end it. It's fine ballad playing, and the crowd enjoys it. Track 6, It's a Big, Wide, Wonderful World, this is a tune from songwriter John Rocks. That's R-O-X from 1939. The song first appeared in the short-lived 1940 Broadway musical All in Fun and was recorded by a bunch of singers, including Peggy Lee in 1963. It's a super happy melody tune. It starts with an eight-measure vamp intro with the horns. Jenkins starts the melody, Shepard joining in with counterlines. It's an AABA form, but the last two measures of the final section become a start to eight more measures of the opening vamp that builds up tension into a solo from Shepard. Well, after Shepard's solo, Jenkins follows with a really cool trumpet solo. I like how he mixes up the articulation on this one. Conliffe gets a solo with really well-connected lines into the vamp section to set up some trading eights from the horns and LaBarbera's drums, back to the vamp again to set up a final run through the melody into the vamp with improvised horn exchanges. Track seven is Simone. It's a tune by Frank Foster, the tenor saxophonist, first released on Elvin Jones's Coalition, in 1970 that Foster played on, and he also played bass clarinet on one track on that recording too. It's a minor 6-8 tune. It's always nice to have one of those, and the rhythm section gets it going with an eight-measure intro. The melody is actually a minor 12-bar blues with some interesting chords. Shepard takes it once, and Jenkins joins in for another time with harmonies. Let's hear the horn melody on this one once the tune gets started. things suddenly get quiet there for a bowed bass solo from Richards. I wasn't expecting something like that on this tune, but it's pretty neat with great tone and some cool double stops near the end. Shepard's solo is next starting with fluid rising tones and some exciting modal explorations. And Cunliffe is ringing out the chords and Barbara pumping it up with accents. Jenkins starts his solo with a repeated descending phrase idea and makes some harmonic excursions as well. But this tune has a really great Bill Cunliffe piano solo, and we should take a listen to a little bit of this right around eight minutes into the tune. Shepard and Jenkins are back for a couple more melody rounds, with a few final phrase repeats to end it up. Track 8, Soul Train. This is by the great pianist composer Tad Dameron from 1957's Mating Call. That's Tad Dameron with John Coltrane, although this has sometimes been released under Coltrane's name. That's the first version of it I got, just called Soul Train as the album title. Demeron tunes always have great melodies and chord changes, and Jenkins gets to take the melody on this one, so let's hear him get going on this ballad melody. Nice vulnerability in that sound. He continues on into an improvised solo. It's got a lot of space and dynamic contrasts. Interesting phrases of rhythmic figures too. Cunliffe has a restrained and tasty solo from after the trumpet solo with a real buttery touch. Make sure you check that one out. And Jenkins is back from the bridge to the final section and a solo cadenza before Cunliffe finishes it with some ripples. This crowd really likes ballads, and uh, yeah. that's a good thing. And the recording ends up with Grand Central, a John Coltrane tune from the 1959 recording Cannonball Adderley Quintet in Chicago, later released just as Cannonball and Coltrane, which is basically the Miles Davis sextet of that time without the leader. And uh, I have a great story about this album, of Memory. When I was uh, my first year of college, I was 18 in the dormitory. And I was playing this loud, this record, and I had the windows open and someone came and banged on the door. And I thought I was going to be in trouble because I was (laughs) playing music. But it was actually a guy who was walking below and heard it. And he said, Cannonball and Coltrane. And he came up. That was a guy named Mike Willis. And we became really good friends after that and had lots of uh, musical and delinquent adventure (laughs) as you do in college. So he's passed on now. So... Thanks for the memories, Mike.
1: I remember having a similar experience over a Rolling Stones album that I played in my.
0: <laughs> in my <laughs> that was when year. people
1: listened to music that other people
0: could hear, not just right. uh, through their. Headphones. Yeah, not only
1: that, but that everybody kind of knew too. So you know who knew, right. knew who was cool and stuff. Now there's so much music out that everybody's got their own personal playlists and stuff. You can't really. It's a different world. Yeah, it's a different world. We don't share much anymore. It's really sad. Well, we're sharing yeah. tonight. Oh, we're always sharing. And that's why none of our friends likes being with us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, barber gets this tune going with a little intro to start it, although Jimmy Cobb didn't do that on the original. It's an exciting tune with fun rhythmic switch-ups, so let's hear it get started. <sighs> getting started on an exciting solo with some cool fills from La Barbara underneath. Shepard follows and keeps up the excitement. All the rhythm section breaks really spur the solos on in this tune, and Cunliffe is on fire on this one, bringing in some of the same Coltrane ideas we heard in the previous tune. But if I have to pick one solo to sample, I guess it has to be from the leader Joe La Barbara, his final solo on the recording. So let's hear the latter part of the drums on this tune. Back to the melody to wrap it up. And that's it. It's a great live recording. The band is super tight, even on the tricky landmarks along the way tune. La Barbara was 74 years old at the time of this recording, sounding powerful and confident, whether driving things along or with creative drum solos like we just heard. And speaking of 74, we get 74 minutes of a great yeah. mix of tunes originals from la barbara and conliffe a joe lovano tune covers of jazz giant originals and a standard that we don't hear very often and it ends up with dameron and coltrane impressive solos by shepard and conliffe interesting bass sounds from richards and i really enjoyed Jenkins' unique soloing concept also, the sound quality is excellent for a live recording. I think it sounds better, a little more ambiance than the Justin Coughlin recording we heard a few weeks ago on the same Sam First Records label. Definitely worth your listening time.
1: Yeah, and like you, I actually, the first thing I wrote here is the miking of, on the band is extraordinary. Uh, th- yeah. the, uh, it just comes up sounding really great with the brass and drums especially placed forward. I enjoyed hearing the drums be so, like, present. Yeah. But I felt like, you know, one of our favorite pianists, Bill Cunliffe. Uh, he's really one of the draws on this album for us and probably for mm. listeners out there. And I felt, at least at the beginning, I don't know why this is. It, he was pretty far back in the mix during solos, although he's audible. It's just the sound wasn't up close. And he has this really silky attack, you know, that kind of... He's a smooth player, yeah. Yeah, it keeps him on the quiet side anyway. So I kind of felt like he could have been moved forward, although and I I don't really want to say. Again though it seemed to come farther forward as the album went on or I adjusted to it. I can't really tell. So it <laughs> seems to happen. I'm starting to think it's me. Okay. So he sounds I think he sounds better in the mix at the end. We get some sensitive trumpet solos on the ballads, especially yeah. on Soul Train where, you know, we got a lengthy solo on that. It was really yeah. great. And uh the trumpet was hot on more upbeat tracks. The sax had some very timbres, smooth and reedy at times, warmer at others. And the drums are hard-hitting throughout, and I really love that. I really like hard-hitting, probably from my yeah. love of rock and roll. But when I hear it in jazz, it kind of excites me. Bass had some melodic solos, too. This is really a recording of a great night out of a jazz club. Yeah, would have loved to And had really there. good combinations of styles. This was one I would have liked to have been at, as I'm sure you would, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I really like the material and what they do with it here. So definitely check mm. it out. Hmm. All right, the last album, one we've been waiting to get out there, the Gaz Hughes trio, Nuclear Bebopalypse.
1: (laughs) Great title
0: again. (laughs) Yeah, on Bebop Mm. Records. I think that's Gaz's label. This just came out February 2nd. UK drummer Gaz Hughes. As a sideman, he's performed with Scott Hamilton, Harry Allen, Marshall Allen, Greg Abate, Alan Barnes, and others. He's also collaborated with rock and pop artists. In 2019, Gaz was voted fifth place in the British Jazz Awards in 2020. He released his debut album as a leader, Plays Art Blakey. Then in May, 2022, he released a trio album, Operation, And then the (laughs) follow-up, Beboptical Illusion, was released in February, 2023, and we covered it in an episode that would be 103 beats of different drummers. And we got in touch with Gaz and stayed in touch, and he sent us Nuclear Bebopolips a while back to have a listen to, and we've been waiting for the release date. So here it is. Gaz also wrote to say, with regards to this album, quote, we had been touring most of the year and we wrote the new music whilst on tour. We were adding the new tunes to the set to freshen up the gig for ourselves. So by the time the 2023 tour had finished, we were ready to go in the studio and make the new album. The whole album was finished within a week, including recording, mixing, mastering, artwork, and videos. How about Mm -hmm. that? So we've got Gaz Hughes on drums, Andres Baranek on piano, Gavin Barras on bass, and he's new this time, replacing Ed Harrison that we heard last time. And we've got all original compositions by the band members. This was recorded and mixed by Dave Speakman, mastered by Pete Maher. An album artwork by Tom Sullivan, produced by Gaz Hughes himself. We're going to start out with one of Gaz's originals, The Message. Two little snare hits bring in this minor and bluesy swinging tune. It sounds like the form is (laughs) A-A-A-B-B-A. The fun is in the feel here with half note bass and playful syncopations and anticipations in baronex piano chords that Hughes accents with big hits. Let's check it out. Switches up to a steady walk after the melody for Baronek's improvised solo with a full ringing bass tone. You can taste the silver in this one. Horace Silver, that is. Yeah. Baris gets a bass solo on this one too. He has a good melodic sense, but also works in some funky sliding double stops and bluesy bends. Let's sample some of the end of the piano solo into the bass solo on this tune. bass solo they take it through the melody sections again with a repeat of the final section for a fun ending track two ab's blues that's mr baronek's tune it's a 12 bar blues that features some really neat unison bass and piano from the fifth measure and some light and tight drumming from hughes let's hear this fun melody synced ideas in his solo here. Some rollicking tremolos and some zippy lines too. And Hughes has a solo on this one, working it up from a measured start and getting clean tones. Let's hear some of the drums later in the tune. bendy bass note there into a solo mm-hmm. from Barras, with nice brushwork from Hughes underneath. A couple times around the blues melody wraps it up to a fun tag ending. Track three is Gus Hughes's original white noise. Hughes has penned a Latin one with a Cuban feel here, great rhythmic feel from Baronek right away on the pickup notes into the 32 measure AABA melody, and there's a lot more exciting rhythms going on in his solo. Let's check out some of that solo later on in the tune. over on bass from there, again bringing out nice melodies. Then we get a cool Cuban breakdown section with some tasty little clicks from Hughes back into the melody. This is a really fun tune. Track 4, Nuclear Bebopolips, Part 1. This is Baronek's composition. Hughes says Bernick turned up to the first day of the recording with this tune, and hmm. they practiced it a couple of times and went for a recording take. He says, We've just started the new tour and have been opening with this tune as the first number. It's hard playing it without warming up first because of how fast it is, and it feels to me like the musical equivalent of taking a cold shower first thing in the morning. Hmm. Well, it's a super fast one for sure. Berenick starts it out with zippy piano line figures on the 16 measure intro, drums and bass joining in midway. The melody has another zippy 8 measure section and then a contrasting 6 measure section. There's eight measures of the intro idea and then a repeat of the previous sections into a break and a final 16 measure section with a break into a solo from Baranek. Let's hear it get going. This solo gets the double espresso rating uh, for this week. With runs, ringing notes, and rhythmic excitement, the intro figure returns as a segue to a speedy brush solo from Hughes to take it from the intro through all the sections to finish it up and probably take a big breath when this one is done. But it's only part one, and we got to go on to part two of Nuclear Bebopolips, which is Gaz Hughes' composition and Hughes gets it started with some solo drums, focusing on the toms. There's an 8-measure intro then of menacing piano chords before the melody, seems to be 32 measures plus 6 measures of vamp, and has some nice twists from minor to brighter major chords, and switches from snappy bass and left-hand piano syncopated chords to a chugging bass walk on the way. Bernek's solo really swings hard, and he gets in some impressive speedy rhythmic figures too. Uh, Let's check out Barris' bass solo on this one. Section there after the vamp, and he goes on and on with some impressive snare work before they get back into the melody to a final vamping section. Track six is another Hughes original, shooting from the hip. It's time for something funky, starting out with a really cool bass line from Barris. It's got kind of a double time subdivided feel to it, but if you count it at the half speed, you've really got a twelve bar blues construction. But check out the far out rising piano chords and bass figures from the ninth measure. Let's check it out. great bluesy and funky ideas in Baronix's solo on this tune, and we should hear some of that before we move on, so let's go check out some piano. Modulation there before Barris is up for a bass solo with a lot of bendy blues touches and funky rhythms throughout. They take it around the blues a couple times more with the melody to an extended ending of those cool rising figures. Track seven, disinformation. This is a Barris original. The press release says that a touch of Ellingtonia creeps in on this one, and I think you'll agree. Check out the rolled figures on the piano from Baronek and also the Duke-like flourishes behind Barris's bowed bass melody. Let's hear it get going. will be back soon for a plucked bass solo too, showing again what a melodic bassist he is when soloing. Baronek solos too, with a classy touch, quickly turning lines, two-handed synced ideas into right-hand runs. The bowed bass melody is back once more, and Baronek charms with the final piano section. And the recording ends up with a Gaz Hughes composition, Julie Ann, A Latin beat with nice tom work from Hughes, and an interval ostinato bass from Barris, right from the eight-measure intro. The melody is minor and moody, but brightens in spots. Baranek plays it freely. It sounds like an A-A-B form with 16 measure sections. There are two extra measures of piano ripples after the B section. Let's hear this one get started. with ringing chords and figures, showing off his touch and clean articulation. He plays on, connecting back to another time through the melody. At the end, they extend out with rippling piano lines over a final vamp. And that's it. This is meat and potatoes, swing, bop, and post-bop music, but it's filet mignon that you're getting for your meat. Hughes has upped his (laughs) composition game with some interesting surprises and twists in the tunes that still sound instantly enjoyable. I like the Latin feels on White Noise and Julianne too. Baranac is an awesome piano player, mining the styles here from Ellington and Horace Silver, but also mixing in more modern harmonic ideas in his own flair with a great touch and exciting solos. The new bassman Barras here has a great warm tone, and his solos are all really melodic. And our leader Gaz Hughes holds everything together in good time. He's not a bombastic player at all, but rather the kind of drummer I'd like to play with who concentrates on subtleties, interesting beat variations, and the tone of his drums. There's a lot of textured brush work to enjoy on this recording. He may run out of bebop words for title possibilities, but I don't think there's any danger of running out of great new music, because it seems to be getting better and better with each release. He's working hard touring around the UK, but we like to get more listeners around the world, so everybody out there, check out Gaz Hughes. And this great new recording we've got here, Nuclear Bebopalypse.
1: Yeah, I uh, completely concur with what (laughs) Russ has said. Now, first of all, I want to mention that Gaz Hughes and his uh, very clever titles for these albums makes him a man after our own heart. We often try to (laughs) do this with our own podcast titles. We don't seem to run out of titles. Like, inspiration comes all the time, so I'm sure he'll come up with lots of other ones, too. Anyway, this is another well-played set of traditional sounding jazz, it's just, and like you said, filet mignon, it's kind of high class that way. Good energy and satisfying blues licks in many of the tracks. It's a trio, and I enjoyed all the solos, Hughes himself coming up with some interesting combinations of rhythms and sounds, but Andrzej Barnek on piano has not only memorized the piano blues licks encyclopedia. Um, he delivers these licks <laughs> in an immediately appealing style. Gavin Barris on the double bass keeps the groove going when he solos and gets a satisfyingly full sound out of his instrument, well caught on the recording. What's not to like about this? Even the title is great. Yeah, this is all very satisfying and in a traditional jazz and blues style of playing, it recommends itself. And <laughs> the the title recommends it, it too. So go for this. We we're big fans of Gas Hughes and we really hope he's gonna. Yeah, You know, sell a lot of these, a lot of records for this one. It's really good.
0: Can't wait to hear more. Yeah, me neither. And that wraps it up for episode 151, Themes and Syncopations. Next week, we were already decided uh, in the spring here, we get a little bit of extra time so we can plan ahead. We're going to have a woodwind thing going on next week, both in classical and jazz. What
1: have you got coming up for us, Mike? I have lots of flute stuff. One of the recordings I have is called um the Spore Collection Volume Three, and it's the the guy Henry Spore, I think his name is um, has a huge collection of historical flutes oh, okay and and a different flute is being used on each of these uh works performed on the album, so this is they're already up to the third volume. i didn 't actually hear the first two, but I was really kind of you know right. interested in that. Uh, we have one of our favorite harpsichordists Jean Rondeau pairing mm. with Anna Besson in a uh, Recording of Corelli, and a French composer I've never heard of, so it's, this is going to be something new. It's a Baroque-era composer. That's jean Baptiste Canton dit le jeune. Okay. Mm. So we'll have a recording of that. And then we have one of my favorite artists, not necessarily one of yours, but I know you like her a little. Uh, Patricia Kopachinskaya has an album called Take Three, where she has a clarinetist there. So mm. we got that wind theme going there and Paulina Lechenko on piano. So I was curious to hear that. It looked like an interesting and varied program, as is often the case with Kopachinskaya. I'm always interested in what she's doing.
0: Sounds interesting. Mm. On the jazz side, we've got one of our favorite pianists, Enrico Pieranunzi, mm. with a bassist and clarinetist. So it's a trio. It's called yeah. Traveler's Way. And so that's going to be interesting. And I've got another clarinet album by Palestinian clarinetist Mohammed Najem. It's called Jaffa Blossom, and that's got also some kind of flutes and other interesting things, mixing Middle Eastern modes with uh, jazz improvisations. So that sounds kind of cool. I couldn't come up with another (laughs) clarinet album that I liked or any other flute. So we'll just stick with the woodwind theme and we're going to hear a saxophonist we really like on one of our favorite jazz labels. That's Diego Rivera on Positum, Right. and his new release just came out with just a word and we've got some Art here Hirahara on piano on that so we know it's going to be good so clarinets and saxophone on the jazz side. If you want to get all of these recordings uh, listened to ahead of time we'll have the episode playlist up on Deezer a few hours after this episode also be a link to it on our Facebook page so come over and check it out if you want to get started listening Thanks, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And don't forget to check out the Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard Podcast. Their little promo will follow when we sign off here.
1: Any final words, Mike? Uh, There are no final words. (laughs) There can be no words for the wonderful music we heard today. We have to just (laughs) listen to it all again.
0: Yeah. Looking forward to getting started listening after I spend all day getting this episode ready to release tomorrow. Oh, boy so until next week episode 152 keep listening and we'll see you again next time
1: same difference two jazz fans one jazz standard a review of a single jazz standard through music history and stories and this is aj and this is johnny if you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards